It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. If you have your Bibles, Matthew chapter 16. Uh, over the last several <clears throat> several weeks, we've been walking through this idea of idolatry, and uh, hopefully eventually we'll get into this idea of uh, altars and, and get more into that, that kind of a concept. Uh, we, we, we looked at the Shema, looking at what has God called us to in the sense of this idea that we are to love God with absolutely everything in our lives, our, our hearts, our souls, our might. And over the last couple of sessions, we were looking at this idea of idolatry, at least in a very broad sense. And I want to look at one particular story with you, uh, which comes from Matthew chapter 16. I think it is a good reminder in the midst of all this, because uh, I don't know about you, as, as just this idea of idols, uh, idolatry, adultery, as, as you just look at that concept, it can start to feel a bit overwhelming, uh, and it can have this potential where you're looking at what we are called to, and, and you're looking at this idea of, of idols, and you start to going, well, okay, I obviously have some stuff in my life that I need to deal with, and it, and it can start to feel bigger than it probably is, uh, and I... And I Let's just dive in. It'll make more sense as we get into this thing. Uh, well, what I actually want to do is I want to give a concept that I often give in our semester. And so you guys being alumni, uh, most of you have heard this. <clears throat> but if you've done the online program uh, or if uh, you've just been a part of our Ellerslie world as, from a distance, uh, I, love, I love Bible geography. And one of the th things that we typically do in our semester is we walk through and spend some time looking at the geography of Scripture, and just how important that is to understanding Scripture itself. And this really kind of co coalesced in my life um, six, seven years ago. <clears throat> I went to Israel, and I always knew that the land was important, because that makes sense. Uh, I always had a Bible atlas, because there's pictures, you know, makes you feel like a kid. Uh, so I, I've known the importance of it, but it didn't make sense. It didn't all, all the puzzle pieces didn't come together until I was actually walking the land, and I just... It's like this epiphany hit me, and it's like, this is important. And it's amazing how much Scripture opens up when you see it in the light of geography. And so, and you guys, you guys know this, but it's been just one of my delights over the last several years to take groups to Israel and just say, okay, we're not, we're not going on a tourist trip. Let's, let's take Scripture, <clears throat> go to the very places it happened, and just start to open it up. Uh, and, and my trips have morphed. Uh, because I've just learned a lot of things along the way of what to do and what not to do and how to deal with our crazy tour guides and, you know, all those, all those fun adventures. Uh, and we have some fun stories that we could share in this, uh, in this room, <laughs> which we're not going to do. Just thought I'd clarify. Uh, but Mariah was in our, our first trip, and it was, uh, oh, and Caitlin. I, I know I said I wasn't going to share stories, and then, hey, and got Juliet. I mean, we could, we could just start, like, going. Uh, and, and the first one was interesting, uh, and they, I think they've gotten better every time, uh, God willing. Uh, but there's something so profound about seeing Scripture on location. It just opens up the passage, and it actually starts to make more sense. And you start to say, oh, that's why that happened there. Oh, there's a phenomenal significance about that location. And you start to see these, these word plays in Scripture. You start to see some of the, the strange things that we tend to miss, like the meaning of the names and some of the 
uh, layering of, of the geography. In other words, this happened in a location, but then this also happened in the location, and then this also happened on that location. And then Jesus shows up and does something, and it's like he presumes you know what has happened in that place. And there's just this neat richness to Scripture when you see it in light of the geography. Uh, all that being said, uh, maybe that was like a cheesy pitch to be like, and we also have a trip coming up this next year, uh, which we do, uh, but I don't have the dates yet. We're working on all that. Uh, but we have a trip coming up, uh, which I'd love for you to join me. That being said, in Matthew 16, there's this phenomenal story, and I, I want to look at the story with you. Uh, before we do that, I just want to give us a reminder of this idea of idolatry. This has at least been my definition that I've been playing with, or at least the placeholder. So idolatry is looking to anyone or anything besides Jesus to meet my needs. And again, over the last couple of sessions, we've been fleshing that out a little bit. Uh, but what I want to do is I want to look at this location called Caesarea Philippi. And if, if you typically go to Israel, a lot of people go up to Caesarea Philippi. It's in the north area. Uh, but there's an incredible story that happens in Matthew 16 that makes far more sense when you see it in light of the geography. And for me, as I've been walking through this idolatry concept, uh, this story keeps coming back into my mind. One, I find it interesting that Jesus goes right into the middle of this place and declares some incredible truth. And I just want us to, for our own souls, look at this idea fresh. So I have some pictures. So for those listening to the podcast, uh, I'm pulling an Eric and going, if, you're not, if you don't see the video version of this, I'm sorry, you're just missing out on some good stuff. Uh, so we're going to really beef up the pictures so that, uh, just kidding. Uh, but Caesarea Philippi is in the northern part of Israel. Uh, so there's a Sea of Galilee in, on the map down here below. The Mediterranean's off here to the left. And it's, it's a little hard to see on, on, in the live version. But up here in the top right corner, there is a town called Caesarea Philippi. It's right near a place called Dan. And so if you remember Old Testament uh, Bible stories that often talks about that the land of Israel went from Dan to Beersheba. So Dan in the north to, to Beersheba in the south. So Dan is this northern region up in the north. It's actually very beautiful. It's very lush. It's very green. Uh, there's a lot of springs and, and water, uh, which is rather rare for Israel. Uh, but just north of the Sea of Galilee, there's this place at the foot of Mount Hermon called Caesarea Philippi. Now, this is a scene of you're on the Golan Heights looking at Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon is the tallest mountain in Israel. It's a little over 9,000 feet. Uh, this is the main water source for all of Israel. So the water comes off of Mount Hermon, flows into the Jordan River, which goes into the Sea of Galilee, which then flows down all through Israel, ends up in the Dead Sea. So this is one of the main water sources for, for all of Israel. And at the base of the mountain, there's this place. Uh, so this is looking from the other direction, but there's this place called Caesarea Philippi. And so if you can imagine the scene of in the northern part of Israel, there's this giant mountain uh, which was often used for idol worship. Uh, in fact, some, some presume that, uh, if you remember Og, king of Bashan, uh, he would have reigned in that northern Golan Heights region of today, uh, likely would have had part of Mount Hermon, and, and therefore being the tallest mountain in the area, mountains were used for idol worship. It was the place of altars and the place of sacrifices. And, and so Mount Hermon likely was that location. But at the base of that mountain, there was this place where these springs would bubble forth, and it was consistently being used for idolatry. So, again, Caesarea Philippi stands in this lush area near the foot of Mount Hermon. And after the, king of, uh, sorry, after the death of King Herod, if you remember that wicked King Herod, 
His son Philip, the Tetrarch, renamed the city after himself and Caesar Augustus, who originally gave control of the area to King Herod. So King Herod is reigning under Roman rule uh, over all of Israel for the, for the time. When Herod dies, the, the region is split up between his three sons. Philip <clears throat> takes the northern region, which includes this area. And there was a town there, and he renames the town Caesarea Philippi, giving honor to the Caesar as well as himself, <laughs> which is just sad, especially in this town. So in Old Testament times, the northeastern area of Israel became a center for Baal worship or Baal worship. Eventually, worship of the Baals were, re- were replaced with worship of a Greek fertility gods, this one very particular being Pan. So let me just show you a few pictures here. So this is that kind of this mountain range area, and if you'll see, there's like this big cave right in the middle of the mountain. And I'll talk more about the cave itself, but this was the location of the Temple of Pan. Uh, so this whole region was, uh, by the time of Jesus, it was a fairly good-sized city. And there was multiple temples and multiple areas of worship. Uh, and it's kind of hard to see on the screen, but uh, there's this water uh, from the springs that are bubbling forth. And back in the time of Jesus, it's shifted over the years, uh, but the spring actually was in the middle of this cave. It would bubble forth out of the cave and flow down into eventually the Jordan River. But here's a artist's rendition of what it would have looked like at the time of Jesus. And so, again, it's kind of hard to see, but right behind the temple on the left, that's the Temple of Pan, uh, you see the cave. So you kind of see this dark opening kind of thing in the, in the far left. So that would be the Temple of Pan. The temple in the middle is the Temple to Zeus, and then you see some stages and some other craziness that I'll talk about in just half a second. So here's an aerial view of that same shot. So again, you, you see the cave, and if you can imagine where the ruins are off to the right of that, <clears throat> this is where that Temple of Zeus would have been. This is where some of the, the fertility sacrifices and worships and all that kind of stuff uh, would have been taking place. So again, here's that picture. Here's the artist rendering so you can kind of get at least in your mind. Uh, and then here's another shot of de- being down below. The cave again is off to the left. But just for the size perspective, look how small the people look. I mean, this is actually a massive mountain. The cave is huge. It's this giant opening in the rock. And of course, they're standing all where this, uh, the ones off to the right would be where the, uh, the plays would be acting and, the, and the, the sacrifices would be taking place. And the, kind of in that middle area is the Temple of Zeus. And off to the far left would be the Temple of Pan. Again, I'm just trying to get you up to speed. So here is, you're standing on like the sacrificial areas you're standing uh, kind of to the, uh, the, the other side of the Temple of Zeus. And as you start looking, you kind of see one of the pillars, which is the area of the Temple of Zeus. And then you see the cave off to kind of the far end over there. So in light of all this, I, I want you to put yourself in this scenario. And I, I want to read just one verse really quick, and then I'll come back to this. But in Matthew chapter 16, verse 13 it says, now Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi. And it's, it's interesting when you look at Scripture, we take locations for granted all the time. It's like we've su- super spiritualized locations. So it's like you hear a place, you're like, mm, that's powerful. Yes. Yes, Goliath was from Gath. Mm. Do you know where Gath is at? And in, in relationship to the Valley of Elah, in relationship to Bethlehem? Because all three of those locations are really important specifically the Valley of Elah and Bethlehem, but in, in relationship to the David and Goliath story. 
locations really are significant. And so just as a fun side note, if you're studying and reading Scripture and it has a location, look it up. Where is it? And sometimes the location gives you an aha into the story itself. And there's countless examples, uh, but we don't have time for that this morning. You'll have to come to a semester. <laughs> there's a plug for Ellerslie. Or come to Israel with me on a trip. You like how this is like a half promotion uh, advertisement? This Daily Thunder was brought to you by Israel Tours with, just kidding. <clears throat> so we, we look at a passage like this where it says that Jesus comes into the area of Caesarea Philippi, and we've heard these kind of stories, and so we nod along and go, okay, well, yeah, he's in this place called Caesarea Philippi. But if you are from this culture, and you heard that Jesus went into a region called Caesarea Philippi, you would be like, excuse me? What is going on? Jesus does not go to places like Caesarea Philippi. Like, this is a little scandalous. So let me explain why. There's a term that you have heard and likely have used, and in fact, it's, even, it's in our passage, is this term, Gates of Hades. But what it's actually referring to is all this occultic stuff happening in Caesarea Philippi. So when you look at this mountain again, and, and you see the cave, that cave was actually called the Gates of Hades. It sat at the back of the Temple of Pan, and the idea was is that this god, this fertility god called Pan, actually lived in the cave. In fact, this was the entrance into Hades. This is where the gods supposedly dwelt, and therefore, in the springtime, they had to coach, encourage, entice the gods to come out from the gates of Hades into the land so, they, so the gods can give them prosperity, uh, fertility, and, you know, for the land and for the people. So the cave of the mountain re was referred to as the gates of Hades. It's the location where Pan and other fertility gods lived during the winter before emerging each spring. In order to entice the gods returning spring, the people would often engage in prostitution, bestiality, and the like. Now, I don't want to go into a lot of details, but as you, as you get into this idea of Caesarea Philippi, it is, it is not just dark. It is incredibly perverse. The whole idea was is, and again, anytime you get close to a fertility gods, there's always sketchy stuff happening. And it's because, well, if we want to appease the fertility gods, if we want to show them that we want to honor them and love them and want their provision of fertility, well, then we need to engage in acts of fertility. And so if we want the rains for our crops, if we want our flocks to have babies, if we want, you know, as humans to have children, well, that must come from these fertility gods. And so therefore, let us appease them. And so every springtime, which is the, you know, the, the season of love and war, we need to entice these fertility gods out of their winter residence. And so they would have these big festivals in Caesarea Philippi where publicly they would be engaging in prostitution and every means of sexual deviancy in a public sense. Uh, in fact, uh, in one of the, uh, let me go back really quick. Uh, and I, I'm not trying to highlight anything, but you see the Temple of Pan, and then you see the Temple of Zeus. Right in the middle, I don't know if you can see this, there's a little indent into the, into the wall. And one of the things that they would celebrate is they had a six-foot statue of male anatomy that they would worship. And they would bow down before, and that they would sacrifice to, and and in the big celebration every spring, they would take out this 
statue would parade it down the, the main street of the town, allowing people to uh, engross themselves in every means of sexual perversion publicly. Uh, Pan was uh, symbolized by a goat, and so they would often have a lot of goats. Uh, and so you kind of see this theater and the kind of the flat thing up on the top. And so one of the things that they would often do is bring out the goats and they would engage in bestiality and, and just all these forms of perversion to entice the gods. So in light of all that, again, come to this idea. So during the time of Jesus, Caesarea Philippi would be similar to what we would call a red light district. It's a city of people knocking literally and symbolically at the gates of Hades, at the gates of hell. So could you imagine, here is Jesus... And he looks at his disciples and says, hey guys, let's go up to Caesarea Philippi. Now, it would be similar to us saying, hey, let's go down to Las Vegas and go to like one of the strip clubs. And you'd be like, <clears throat> um, we're Christians. That's not where we go. Uh, when, when I was out of college, I went to, uh, to Europe and went to a few countries and we got to go to Amsterdam. And I loved the countryside. Oh, the countryside was gorgeous. Amsterdam was so dirty. I mean, just as a city, it's dirty. As a culture, it's just a little dirty. And one of the things that Amsterdam is known for, one, everything's legal, everything's permissible, uh, but they're known for their red light district. And I was just this young, innocent Christian kid uh, who went with a secular college group and they're all like, let's walk through the red light district. And I'm like, I, I, I don't know what I was imagining, but I was thinking lights and, you know, like, like Christmas or something, you know? you know? I'm like, oh, maybe they really like red, you know? And so maybe there's like this cool, you know, light show stuff. And so we started walking down the red light district, and I'm like, where? There are no lights. <laughs> and pretty much I saw the street the whole time because I was just like, oh, dear Jesus, oh, dear Jesus. Uh, and it was wonderfully, it was great for my prayer life. I I was so, I genuinely was, I was so burdened for these, for these people on this, on this strip, and my heart was breaking going, why, why would a culture celebrate this? Why, why would we be so excited about this perversion and just, so could you imagine, here is the God of the universe, looking at his disciples saying, hey, let's go to the Amsterdam red light district. And you'd be like, no, that's not where Jesus goes. I mean, sure, Jesus may hang out with prostitutes once in a while to, you know, bring help and hope, but that, he doesn't just go to places like the middle of Las Vegas, does he? So could you imagine, here's Jesus in the middle of all this. And whether, uh, my guess is that the festival was not happening, just for clarity's sake. But this region is known as this place of perversion. It's known as this place of idolatry. It's known as this place of twistedness. It's known as this, it sounds like our culture, doesn't it? And Jesus comes right into the middle of that and asks a very intriguing question. So Matthew chapter 16, I want to read starting in verse 13 going down to verse 18. It says, Now when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, well, some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, but still others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He says, okay, okay, but who do you say that I am? Why would Jesus ask that question 
here. Isn't that interesting? I mean, he, he could have asked that question anywhere. I mean, he's been hanging out with the disciples for, for a while. I mean, they, they were probably just on the shore of the Sea of Galilee not long before this. Why, why wouldn't that have been an okay location to say, who am I? Who do you actually think I am? In the middle of this backdrop, the disciples are like, well, yeah, some say Elijah, some say maybe one of the prophets, some say, well, maybe John the Baptist come back to life. Jesus says, okay, here's the real question, though. Who do you say that I am? And look at the response. Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And look at Jesus' response. He says to he says to Peter, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Interestingly, the name Simon means the one who hears. So ponder the, just the meaning of that name in light of this story. Here is Peter, and he says, You know who you are? You are the Messiah. You are the one we've been waiting for. You are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And Jesus goes, Well done, the one who listens. Because obviously you did not come up with this. You are not that smart, Peter. The Father has revealed this to you, and you listened, and you heard him, which is neat because that's what his name means. And then Jesus goes on and says, I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overpower it. And of course, we as Christians are like, "Mm, amen, that is good. But do you realize that he's talking in a context geographically, not just of a theoretical concept of the gates of Hades, though that's involved. He's standing near the gates of Hades in the mind of culture. And in the cultural mindset, here is a literal gates of Hades. And Jesus says, that will not prevail against my church. Do you realize how phenomenal that is? Some of you are not awake. Uh, This is not the whole point of the message, but I just want to emphasize this since certain church groups have gone crazy with this. Look at what Jesus says. He says, I say to you that you are Petros, or Petras, and upon this Petra, I will build my church. The reason I want to bring this up is what has ended up happening, like for example in the Catholic Church, is they have taken this passage to say that Jesus was giving the popery, if I may use that term, the, the position of pope to Peter. That Peter was the establishment of the church. The church was built upon the foundation of Peter and therefore is the, because of the line of Peter that we have this, the pope thing. And they use this passage as, as the evidence of that. Well, Jesus looks at Peter and says, Peter, you're a rock and upon this rock I'm going to build my church. And I would like to point out to you, that's not in the passage. That's not what he's saying. And you can see that even with the language. And, and I, find this, I find this delightfully humorous. Jesus says, oh, Simon, the one who listens, you did not get this by yourself. You actually listened. You got this from my father. Well done. And it sounds like, Peter, this is the first time you, you just didn't speak before you're thinking. You listened and then you spoke. Because Peter has a tendency to just to put his foot in his mouth and just speak without thinking. We have that same problem, by the way, <laughs> some of us. 
So Jesus is like, hey, well done, Peter. Great job. This is awesome. You listened. And Peter, I'm going to call you a rock. But the word that he uses for rock, Petros, doesn't mean rock. <laughs> what Petros means is little tiny pebble. That's what it means. Isn't that hilarious? I just think that's awesome. Well done. You know what I'm going to call you? I'm going to call you, I'm going to call you little tiny rock. And then he says, upon this rock. And it's actually a different word for rock. And you're just like, well, then what is he referring to? Do you realize he's not saying, Peter, I'm building my church upon you. He says, Peter, you're just a little tiny rock, but I'm building my church upon the rock. Well, what, what is Jesus referring to? Do you know that all throughout Scripture, there's only one person who's ever been given the title of rock? And in the Old Testament, it was God himself. No one was ever called a rock except our God. And then you get into the New Testament, and we find out that Jesus is the rock, that he is the cornerstone. So let me just give you a few passages to, to, to show this. Uh, Deuteronomy 32, 4 says, He is the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are just. He is a God of faithfulness and without injustice. Righteous and upright is he. Or 1 Samuel 2, 2, There is no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one beside you, nor is there any rock like our God. I love what David says in 2 Samuel 22. He says, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior. You save me from violence. Or Psalm 18 verse 31, for who is God but the Lord and who is a rock except our God? God and God alone is the one who's called a rock that he is the sure foundation, that he is the stronghold and the refuge, that there's something that is unshakable and unwavering. What is it? It is our God. And so you see in the New Testament then that Paul picks up on this and says that the church is being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief rock, the cornerstone. And yeah, there's some other rocks, and we are being shaped and molded, but you are just a tiny little pebble that he's putting you in this wall or on this foundation. You are not the rock. Are you getting this? He is the rock. And yet you get to be a little piece of it. So when you come back in the passage, I think it's phenomenal that here is Jesus looking at Peter saying, well done, Peter, you listened. And I'm going to call you a little tiny pebble. Which is a part of the big rock, by the way. But do you realize that I'm building my church upon the rock and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it? And, and if you just, if I can go back to this picture, when you look at this gates of Hades, so, that, so there's that opening in, in, the, in the, that cave, right? That spot where the Temple of Pan was at. Isn't it intriguing that Jesus is saying, upon this rock, I will build my church. He's speaking of himself, and yet ironically, all around the gates of Hades, there is a rock. There is this mountain. It's, it's a rock. It's a big rock. <laughs> it's a massive, massive rock. And it's almost this ironic statement that Jesus is making and saying, you see, see, you see that little hole? It's a massive hole. But do you see that little hole in the massive rock? Do you think that rock is actually intimidated by that little gates of Hades? No. I don't think the mountain is going, oh no, 
it's about to take me over. The gates of Hades has no power and no authority and no position in light of the monstrous, this, this mountain of rock. I think that's sort of purposeful. I think God beautifully designed this geography to make a point. What's the point? Do you realize that darkness really has nothing on light? That here is Jesus talking about the gates of Hades. And he says, the gates of Hades will not and cannot prevail. I don't know about you, but when I look at culture today, it just seems like darkness is invading. It seems like chaos is ensuing. It seems like, if I, if I bring it into the idea of idolatry, it seems like the idolatry of culture is ramping up. Doesn't it seem like even the stuff of Caesarea Philippi in our culture has taken, gone to a whole other level? It's like sexual perversion, this giving ourselves to idols, is not just a hidden thing, not that it's ever been fully hidden, but it is more public and more brash than ever before. It's like being shoved down your throat whether you want it or not. Uh, yes, yesterday was July 25th, right? Christmas in July. And uh, so on, on Sunday, I went to one of the church family's houses for our annual Christmas in July party. And of course, our party is, you know, you sing Christmas songs and play Christmas games and have food and we laugh a lot and, and then we always watch a cheesy Hallmark Christmas movie. One of the love stories that is the same story, you just same sweaters, you just put them in a different location, and you know, it's you know, you have this marketing executive who's uncertain about her life, and so she goes back home and, and sees the guy in the red sweater and goes, Oh, that's my life is forever changed, you know. I mean, you, you know the stories, uh, but for some reason, we keep watching them <clears throat> anyway. So, we turn on a cheesy Hallmark Christmas love story, and it was, it was, it was more of a recent one. And it was really interesting. There's like this part right in the middle, and it, it, it wasn't highlighted, but it was just, it, they just shoved it in there. And I was like, seriously? What is up with our culture? Why does every single film have to have some of this cultural garbage? Like, it is so, it's driving me crazy. Folks, it's just, that's our culture. And we can complain about it. And I probably keep, I will, but do you realize, what if the issue actually isn't the darkness? What if the issue is the fact that we've embraced the darkness? And that we're not, not actually embracing light. We're not walking in light. Does that make any sense? In other words, I cannot change the movie industry. I, I can pray for it, but I'm not in the movie industry. Now, I have a ch ch decision whether I want to watch the cheesy Hallmark Christmas movies or not. And I probably will continue, but... Maybe. But do you realize the issue for most of our hearts is not the fact the culture is dark. The culture is always dark. The real issue is, am I willing to walk in light? And it does seem that darkness is invading, and it does seem rather discouraging when you look at culture to say, well, it just seems like perversion is ramped up. It seems like twistedness has gone to another level. It seems like the worship of money and success and fame and popularity and, and entertainment and sports have just reached just pinnacle levels. 
I could look at my own life and be like, I seems like, and it's been true as I've been walking through this series, the more I've been pondering all this, seems like God's been putting or revealing more and more idols in my own heart, going, boy, there's a lot more stuff in my life that I re- than I realized. And it can feel a bit overwhelming. But that's why I love the story of Caesarea Philippi. Because do you realize that Jesus is one to go into the middle of the most darkest, depraved, twisted places? That, that alone should be encouraging. Because there is no place too dark, no place so twisted that Jesus is not willing to invade. He's not intimidated by it. He's not pushed around by it. And it's in the middle of this location, he asks a key question. Who am I? And in our own souls, can I even ask that question? Whether or not you've recognized some of the idolatry of your own heart, we live in a culture of idolatry. And the question we need to ask ourselves is, who is Jesus? Who do we actually say that he is? And if we actually knew that he is the God of the universe, if we actually knew that he is, in fact, the Messiah, why are we so intimidated by the, by the culture? Why are we so pushed around by the invading darkness? Wouldn't it be interesting if we actually saw God for who he is and realized that he is, in fact, the rock? And that the gates of Hades, no, no matter the intensity, no matter the perversion, no matter the twistedness, it cannot prevail against our God. That's good news for the idols of your heart. Because there is nothing going on in your life that Jesus can't handle. There's no perversion so great in your life that he can't deal with. There's no addiction so strong that he can't overcome and bring freedom. There is no habit or mindset or personality thing or whatever you may turn to that he can't set you free. Yeah, but you don't understand. My dad dropped me twice when I was a kid on my head. Yeah, but you don't understand the abuse. You don't understand the twistedness. You don't understand the things that have happened to me. You don't understand the things that I've chosen. You don't understand the... Yeah, but, but who is Jesus? Who is God in your life? And if we actually understood that God is God... I think things would change. And maybe I'd say it this way. Where are you placing your faith? I, I've said this many times, but it seems, like, it seems like we have more faith in the power of our enemy than we do in the power of our God. And we wouldn't necessarily say that with our lips, but we do say that with our actions, with our thought processes. It's like, you know, we have, we have our our special addictions or our special giants that are just beating us up. And it's like we presume that they'll always have to be in our lives. And it's funny how that thought process has infiltrated the church. Well, yeah, guys will be guys. Yep, but not Christian guys. Yeah, but yeah, Christian guys will just be Christian guys. No, they won't. Just women will be women. No, they won't. Does that make sense? You don't have to be addicted to lust the rest of your life. You don't have to be addicted to pride or greed or gossip or fear or emotionalism or you, you name the thing. That does not have to define us. This is good news. Well, yeah, but it seems massive. It seems like it's just infiltrated the culture. It just seems like in my own life, fear is just ruling and controlling. 
It just seems like I'm being pushed around. It seems like my whole life is just surrounded by the gates of Hades. Yeah, but do you not hear Jesus? Who is he? And if Jesus is in fact Jesus, the gates of hell cannot prevail. What if we took that internally and realized that's not just true about the church, but that's true about you, the body of Christ, a piece of that church? And realize that if I begin to walk in the reality of Christ, the gates of Hades will not prevail in my life. That God will bring down everything that stands in opposition to Him. That any amount of sin, any amount of pride, any amount of lust and fear and greed and whatever it may be in your life, that it does not have to rule and control you. That's why it's called good news. Is it possible that we need to freshly look at this idea of who is Jesus? Because I think for so many of us, we've gotten lost in the Caesarea Philippi of our culture, in the Caesarea Philippi of our own souls, and we have forgotten who he is. But if he is who he really is, then nothing can stand against that. And we don't have to run in fear. We are Christians. It should be the enemies of Christ. It should be the gates of hell that have to be on the defensive. That when you look at the armor of God, there is no armor for the back because we do not run. We stand. We press forward. We take over culture. Wouldn't that be a phenomenal thought if we didn't just believed it in concept? We didn't just say it, but we actually began to live it? And what if the places of idolatry, the places of perversion in our own lives could be flipped upside down. And we begin to realize that the gates of Hades cannot prevail against Jesus. That would change how we lived. And we need that. Let's pray. Lord, maybe this is just for me, but Lord, this is such an encouragement. And it seems like the real question upon each or set before each of us is who are you? That you are asking us, well, who do you say that I am? Because it seems like everything flows out of that question that how we respond to that question will determine how we live and how we think and how we respond. And Lord, don't let us be pushed around by culture. Lord, I don't want to be pushed around by the idols of my own heart. They need to be destroyed. And Lord, it is so easy, it seems like, in, in our modern days to, for us to look at what's going on around us in the darkness, and what's going on even within our own lives, and just be overwhelmed and be like, well, I just don't see any hope and it's, I've never had freedom and I've never been able to get out of this and I just, I don't think it's possible. Maybe it is for certain people, but not, certainly not for me. Lord, could you remind all of us that if we are in Christ, without exception, we are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. That there is triumph and freedom and life and peace and joy available in you. That in you, the gates of Hades cannot prevail. And we are in you. 
Lord, would you freshly deal a death blow to our idols? Thought patterns, behaviors, addictions. And Lord, anything in our lives that we are using to satisfy some need in our life besides you, Lord, would you put your finger on that and deal with it? And Lord, I thank you that you are so willing to go into the most dark, perverse areas, the places that I would say, well, you don't belong going there. But that encourages me that you're so willing because there's been those kind of places in my heart. And so, Lord, I just freshly invite you into the Caesarea Philippi's of my soul and just say, have at it. And would you be the Messiah, the, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the Savior and the Redeemer that wants to turn the Caesarea Philippi's upside down? Would you, would you start in my own life? Would you do that in our marriages, and our families, in our churches, and our communities, in this world? But, Lord, start with us. And would you allow us to realize that no matter how big the idols seem, no matter how dark it may appear, darkness never triumphs over light. Death has nothing on life. That the enemy has nothing on you. That you are the all-conquering king. You and you alone are the rock that is higher than ourselves. And so, Lord, we put our hope and our trust in you and ask for a tremendous movement of your life within us. Lord, we love you. Thank you for what you're doing in our lives. Just give you all the praise and the glory in your precious, powerful name we pray. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellerslie.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.